welcome to another episode of the Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm Jessica Dahlquist, your host, and every Tuesday I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two extraordinary moms look the same. We all have a story to tell, and we are all mothering in our own way. So let's celebrate that and learn from one another. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear, please share this show with a friend. Good morning, and welcome to episode 250 of the podcast. 250! Woohoo! If you are new around here, I want to welcome you and let you know there are 249 other episodes that you can go back to to hear from other extraordinary moms. And if you've been around here for the last 100, 200, 250 episodes, makes me want to cry. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support, for your love, for showing up, for wanting to be incredible moms yourselves, wanting to learn from these other women through their stories. I do this show as much for me as I do for you selfishly. Really, I do. I get so much out of these conversations and have truly learned so much over these last two years or so as I've done the show. Thank you so much to all the women that have been on, and today's guest is no exception. Today, my guest is Debbie Reber. Debbie is an extraordinary mom who's going to share about children with differences in her own parenting journey as she has parented a child who she has deemed differently wired, and I love that term. I think all kids truly are differently wired and come with their own set of needs. And as we try to address those, we can develop stronger bonds and support them to grow to be successful. All right, let's get to it with Debbie. All right, I'm excited to welcome Debbie Reber today. Hey, Debbie. Hi, Jessica. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Me too. Well, it's morning. It's 10 a.m. where I am. Tell me where you are and what time it is. It is 7 o'clock p.m. I'm talking to you from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Oh, my gosh. That is so crazy. How did you end up there? We moved here. It'll be five years this summer, and we moved here for my husband's job from Seattle. And we thought we would check it out for a year or two and travel, and we ended up falling in love with it. So we're still here, and friends and family keep asking when we're coming back and we just don't know the answer to that question. Wow. What made you fall in love with it? Yeah, it's so interesting. I had never been here before. I showed up with all the bags packed and so I just didn't know what to expect, but it's a very livable city. You know, the work-life balance for my husband has been great and it has kind of, I'd lived in New York City for many years and I love New York and the energy of it and this has a lot of that same kind of energy, but it's much more manageable because it's so much smaller. And yeah, I don't know. It's just a really, it's a pretty pleasant place to be. Yeah. Amazing. I've never been, but I would love to visit. Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place and definitely listeners put it on your list if it it isn't already because it's pretty special. Amazing. Amazing. Well, did you have any children when you moved there? Yes, we had, you know, my son Asher, who's now 13, he he had just turned nine. He was very unhappy about the move at the time, and uh, it was a big transition for him. And now, of course, this feels like his home, mm-hmm. and he, he never wants to go back. So we'll, that will be an interesting conversation, <laughs> you know, when, when that happens. Sure, sure. And did you do anything intentionally to help ease that transition for him, or was it just a matter of time? 
it, you know, we made so many adjustments at that time because we also went from having him in a regular school to homeschooling. So there was a lot happening in that, you know, year of transitions for all of us. And I think we knew in our hearts that it was going to be a really positive thing for him. And we trusted in that and we really had to wait it out. You know, there was no convincing him. He had to kind of get rid of some anxiety and settle in himself. And also he, he noticed over time that our family was happier and that, you know, his dad was around more and he benefited from all of that too. But it, it took about a year, Mm. I'd say. Yeah, Yeah. I would say we've moved a lot. We're in the military, so moves are just part of our norm. And I would say, yeah, it takes about six months to a year to really, even for adults, to really feel like people know you exist in your new space. You can kind of know your grocery store, have your routines established, and feel like you know where you're going without a GPS. It takes a while, though. It really does. (laughs) Yeah, a big moment for me, you know, this is a city where everyone bikes everywhere mm. and you just don't drive if you're if you're in Amsterdam. And so it was a big deal the day when I finally drove to a location and I'd have to stop to pull, uh, you know, I didn't yeah. need to pull out my Google Maps and kind of figure out which canal I needed to turn after, you know. Wow. It's like, yes, I finally mastered the city. Yes, I belong here. Oh, that is yeah. so amazing. Well, today we're going to talk about your motherhood journey. So let's go all the way back 13 years to early motherhood for you. What did you think it was going to be like? And then kind of how did it go in those early days for you? I don't know if I had a lot of ideas about what it was going to be like other than the fact that I I was pretty sure that I was going to rock it. Like I, <laughs> I was really convinced, you know, we, I was a, I was 34, uh, almost 35 when he was born and, you know, and I'm a researcher and I'm really capable. And I, I just was like, I'm ready. I'm in being intentional about this. This is going to be great. And it, you know, of course it was for me, it was really just disruptive in so many ways. And so I think it was, it, it, it was hard for me to really adjust my, you know, he was a really colicky baby and I, I wasn't really prepared for that. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. prepared for all the things I had read in books to not work. Mm-hmm. And that was really difficult for me because I'm kind of a, you know, I was worse than I still am a control freak. And so I, I struggled a lot when he was younger, you know, just feeling like I didn't have the tools to, to give him, uh, what he needed. And, uh, so we were consulting parent coaches from the time he was maybe 10 months old. Cause he was not a sleeper either, mm. unfortunately. <laughs> and that is just exhausting. So even if other parts of the life are going well, the lack of sleep can just put a cloud over your entire existence with your baby. Yeah. And so much stress on, you know, the relationship between my husband and I, because, you know, I was breastfeeding him and, just the way, you know, it was like every couple hours, I'm like, I just can't, you know, I felt like it was always coming down to me needing to swoop in and do what needed to be done so that he would go to sleep. And uh, yeah, those were, those are a rough, that was a rough year that first year of just adjusting to all of that. For sure. Absolutely. And so as he got a little bit older, 
today we're going to talk about neurodiversity and we're going to talk more about what that is, but how did that look personally in your own family? What did you come to learn about your son and his, and his needs and the way that his brain processed the world? It was something we really discovered over time. I think, you know, one of the first books I had read maybe when he was two is like, I think it was something about setting limits for your spirited child or, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I was reading the books that were geared for more intense little people. And, uh, it was something was pretty evident early on that he just had, you know, his tantrums were a little more epic than our friends or, you know, he could like shut down a restaurant, you know, if he wanted yeah. to, like it was, it was big in that way. And some, a kid who could never really settle. And then we also noticed pretty early on that he was really, really precocious, like talking and really complex sentences early. He taught himself to read when he was two. And, you know, so those things were fascinating and so cool. And so that's when we started just realizing this is going to look a little different. And then, you know, over time and preschools, um, having to pull him out of the first preschool because it, it just, you know, I should have to pick him up one day and he was sitting in a basically in a closet by himself because he had been disrupted during circle time. I don't know what was going on, but I was, this is not a good fit for my kid, but I started getting, you know, just things that our friends were doing with their kids, like camps or, um, after school classes or preschool clubs or whatever, weren't really working out for us in the same way. And so we started realizing, okay, this is a little more, there might be more going on. And so with every passing year, we got more information. And um, when he was still in preschool, but we were looking at kindergarten, we got, did do an assessment because we were getting, you know, some teachers were like, you might want to look into this and see what, uh, what might be going on and got some provisional um, diagnoses of ADHD and something called pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. And, so that's when we started trying to get him support and uh it's still you know here we are how many years later and we're still learning more and peeling back the layers and he's changing so Mm. it's really been interesting yeah it is and it's so fascinating to see how the things that often are kind of troublesome and hard to redirect and things as a toddler how ultimately they can kind of mature into them when they're able to to you know focus those types of attributes in the right direction i had a very spirited child for my first as well and I just thought in preschool, how is he ever going to learn how he can't sit still? Like his, he says his brain is spinning so fast. How are we going to do this? And and eventually he was able to kind of channel that more and rein it in. And we still deal with it a lot. But that awareness, that maturity, it kind of can look different. And so I want to give parents some hope that, you know, as your child does grow up, even if these characteristics still do exist in them, even if there is a diagnosis that will continue with them, there's so much you can do with with them and for them, and there's so much hope there. Absolutely, and I think, you know, and that's one of the reasons why they give uh, provisional diagnoses when mm. they're so young, because a lot of these things can just be developmental, sure. and I think that that timeline piece, you know, we put so much pressure on ourselves or on our kids, you know, like what they should be doing at what age, and, you know, if we kind of stop looking through this lens of, you know, this is the way it has to look and start 
recognizing that kids develop differently and they have strengths and and they have areas of weakness but you know there's so much that we can do with their strengths to bring up the areas of weakness and it doesn't have to look the same it doesn't have to happen at the same time for everybody you know I just have to share a little thing my son is in seventh grade and he handwriting has always been you know he he's always struggled with it because the fine motor skills and just sloppy handwriting and so he he's typed you know which is fine like type your papers I don't care but he recently was like I want to learn cursive and so he has been writing the most beautiful cursive letters for the past week and that you know, if I had tried to force that on him when he was in third grade or something, it would have been a disaster. Mm-hmm. And now he's embraced it and he's, he's, he's doing that. So it was just a nice little reminder that our kids, you know, it's never too late to kind of develop skills and learn these things. Good for him. Good for him to figure out what could, could work better for him. Um, and you're so yeah. right. You can't force that upon him. If you're like, we're going to learn cursive today. They'll be like, yeah, eh, exactly. nope. <laughs> would not have gone over well. No, no. So will you define the term neurodiverse for me? This was kind of a new word for me, but it totally makes sense once you explain it. Yeah. So neurodiversity is kind of a new, and I'm using air quotes, which you can see, but you know, a newer phrase that people are using to describe the fact that there are differences in the way that brains are developing and the way that brains are in the world, but there are still you know, that they all fall within the range of normal. So Mm -hmm. rather than looking at things like learning differences or ADHD or all these various, you know, things that show up with our kids, sensory processing issues, all of these things, rather than looking at them as disorders or as deficits, recognizing that they all fall within this spectrum, this range of normal you know, variation within brain development. Mm. So it's a really positive reframe for things that used to be really perceived as deficits or, or problems. And definite limitations. But instead, yeah. it's just, yeah, falling somewhere on the spectrum and it just causes you as a parent to be able to, to view your child in a more positive light. Like this is how he's processing things. This is what we're working with and how is the best way to work with the way that he processes, Right. Yeah, and if you think about, you know, the numbers, at least one in five kids, you know, mm-hmm. and we're talking about kids, but, par- you know, people in general yeah. are in some way neurodiverse. And, you know, my hunch is that it's much larger percentage than that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when you're looking at that kind of, those kind of numbers, then you realize, yeah, this isn't, you know, these this these aren't a bunch of some outliers over there mm. with something that they need to change to fit into the rest of us. Like, there's so many people that we can't define normal so narrowly anymore. Mm, absolutely, absolutely, and and really just accepting all all the range of of interests and characteristics and everything, and each child and each person is unique, and valuing them for what they contribute to the world that's way more important than a certain label or a certain per- perception of how they think or what they are or what their label is. It's so limiting. It is so limiting. And, you know, I think the challenge is, you know, surrounds education, right? Because yes. that's where, that's what such the focus is for our kids when they're younger is we have to figure out how they can get an education. Yes. And that's where it's really challenging because, 
if you are neurodiverse, you know, we still have this kind of traditional education model where, you know, that doesn't really accommodate neurodiversity. And of course, these are kids that when they're older are the ones who are, you know, they're the Elon Musks, like they're the, the people who are doing really creative, cool things. And so it's, it's helping them not just survive, but figuring out how to help them thrive in childhood even though they're kind of operating in a society that doesn't necessarily support or see who they are. Sure. And I know that you chose homeschooling, and we're going to talk more about that. But do you think that children that are neurodiverse can be successful in schools? And if so, what do you think needs to be put in place for them in order to be really successful in in this traditional setting as we know it today? Yeah, I think they, they certainly can be. You know, a lot of it is teacher dependent. And I've talked with a lot of teachers, you know, Asher's had a number of teachers. He was in traditional schools, three different schools um, before we chose to homeschool. And, you know, I think the biggest challenge is that a lot of teachers aren't, they're not trained to either recognize, you know, some of the, you know, executive functioning deficits, for example, and, you know, or, or just to kind of know how to best support these students and they're not given the support that they need. And I think that's one of the first things that we have to figure out is Mm -hmm. how to help teachers be more supported in the classroom so that if they, you know, if they have 25 kids in the class and five of them have different things going on, maybe, you know, needing special accommodations, that's really hard to manage that classroom. So I think we need to look at how to help our teachers have more support, but certainly many kids can thrive in this system with a little bit of extra support, whether that's extra time for tests or um, getting to not do group assignments in this way or having, you know, a child who has dyslexia being able to use something in the classroom that would enable them to, uh, you know, a tablet device that helps them get their uh thoughts onto writing. You know, there's all Mm -hmm. kinds of accommodations. So it's certainly doable. Sure. Yeah. I'm a former teacher and I will say that the desire was always there to scaffold for my kids and to meet them where they're at and whether it's educationally and academic levels or, you know, just the neuroprocessing and everything like that. I always wanted to meet their needs, but with, you know, 25, 30 kids in a classroom, it just was not always possible to be giving the very best to each child in their own individual way. And to a parent, now that I have three kids, my my idea of how I would teach is a little bit different now that I actually have children and I would assign homework much differently, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> but... I will say that as a parent, your child is the most important to you. And so it's hard to see why a teacher would let your child fall through the cracks or continue, you know, battling behavior issues when really it's an academic issue. They're not being challenged or they're not, you know, whatever the accommodations need to be. But I think there's a lot of grace for teachers who are doing the very best they can with what they have. Um, but it's just, it's it's a systemic thing that kind of, I think that training would be ideal for regular education teachers. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. I think, you know, teachers, the majority of them want to, you know, meet their kids, every yeah. single kid in that classroom's needs. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not, there's no easy fix, unfortunately. And, you know, and, and then, of course, kids who are twice exceptional, um, you know, who, meaning that they're gifted and they have some other kind of neurodifference like ADHD or Asperger's or something, 
then it becomes a little trickier because a lot of those kids are they learn so differently that finding a classroom where they can fit in is really difficult. So mm-hmm. a lot of those parents end up homeschooling their kids. Um, so yeah, it's tricky. The education piece is really tricky. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Debbie today, but I wanted to thank one of our show sponsors and that is RX Bar and specifically RX Bar Kids. RX Bar Kids is a clean label snack bar made with high quality ingredients that you can feel really good about serving your kids. RX Bar Kids contains seven grams of protein and have absolutely zero sugar added. No gluten, soy, dairy, or bad stuff. They're delicious. My kids love the flavors and they're the perfect on the go snack, especially during these summer months. We are loving them. They come in four flavors, PB&J, chocolate chip, apple cinnamon raisin, and berry blast. Just before school starts, get your kids hooked on these RX bars so it is the perfect lunch solution in their lunchbox. My kids especially love the chocolate chip and we need to give PB&J a try because that sounds absolutely fabulous. You can get RX Bar Kids bars or the regular RX bars at Target stores or for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com EMP and enter promo code EMP at checkout. That's rxbar.com EMP and enter promo code EMP at checkout. Thank you so much RxBar for sponsoring the show. So was your son um, homeschooled while still in the States or is that something you started more recently since you moved abroad? Yeah, we start. We started when we moved. So when okay. we, he had been in, he had just finished second grade, and I, when we found out we were moving, and I did put in calls to the international schools here, and I didn't get calls back from all of them because, as I found out after I moved, they don't actually accept kids who are differently wired. It a number of them, oh. but a friend who who has advised me, you know, for Asher's since he was a baby, and who's an educator really encouraged me to, you know, use this as an opportunity to try something completely different and to homeschool. And it was not something I really wanted to do, but, um, it was definitely the best choice and I'm so glad that we did it. Yeah. And what have you noticed with your son academically, socially, just in general, since you've been able to kind of tailor his educational path according to his needs a little bit better? I think the biggest shift is that, you know, that I noticed right away is that his anxiety was kind of went away. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I even realized that he had anxiety before, you know, because it was being overshadowed by, or maybe it was being caused by, you know, um, what was happening at school, the dysregulation and the, you know, explosions and all the challenges he was having. So he started to be less just anxious and, um, And I started realizing what a problem that had been for him in school that he wasn't able to, you know, move around when he was working on a project and he, he, he needs to pace and he needs to fidget and, Mm -hmm. and things. And so I really have made it my job to create an environment where he could learn the way he needs to learn. And over time he's become, you know, he's not in fight or flight mode anymore. And so he's more open to not just the academic learning, you know, which I do definitely tailor around his interests. You know, I have a lot of flexibility there, but he's also been open for kind of the social emotional learning because he has, he has the space in his brain and, you know, for, for that kind of learning. Cause he's not in defense mode. Mm. Yeah. 
And I bet that just lights you up as a parent to see him really coming alive and really being able to show up as himself, not to be forced into a box that he previously was where he felt like he wasn't, it wasn't working for him. Yeah. I mean, it, it was really, it's been very gratifying. You know, the, the first year there were, you know, honestly a lot of bumps because I, we both had to learn how to be with each other. And I, again, hashtag control freak. I really (laughs) had to like, continually go back to, you know, why am I, why am I trying to do things this way? Like I had to keep trying to figure out how he learns and who he is and like continually strip away my expectations of what this quote unquote should look like. And so that was a big learning curve for me. But when I was able to really do that and become a lot more adaptable and go with the flow and if he's having, you know, just shake things up and find ways to make things fun and, um, and really, yeah, meet his interests and then to watch him be happy and actually say to me, I love our homeschool. I was like, what? You love school. And, you know, it's been pretty cool to see that happen for sure. Yeah. And what has that done for your relationship? Uh, We're super close. You know, it's, um, you know, again, I was a reluctant homeschooling parent and you know now I really feel like it's such an honor that I get to spend this kind of quality time with him you know I don't know Mm. many moms of a 13 year old boy (laughs) really (laughs) you know who spend that you know we're really close like we travel together we go on day hikes together and we talk about everything and and we have a really close bond and I'm super grateful for that you know we have our bad days. I'm not, I don't want to make this seem like it's all butterflies and rainbows because <laughs> we definitely have our bad days and we can butt heads and we're both very strong willed. And, uh, but it's, it's, I, I feel again, like honored that we have what we have. And I know this is precious time and I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Oh, I just love that so much. It, again, it's just so hopeful. And one of my kids in particular, I feel like we're constantly kind of butting heads, whether it's personality wise or whatever, I don't really know. But when I spend one-on-one time with him, when I try and pay attention to the root of an issue instead of the symptom of the behavior that I'm seeing from him, I just notice a difference in the connection. So will you speak to that mom that's feeling like they can't, you know, maybe their child is neurodiverse. Maybe they just are not succeeding up to what we think of as their potential at school, whatever it is. They're just struggling with a child right now. Um, what would you tell that mom in order to to build that relationship? Maybe it doesn't fix the issues themselves, but the, it starts with that relationship. What would you tell that mom? I would say to start with empathy mm. and compassion, and and not just for your child, but you know for yourself too. But when I am able to, when I realize I'm getting triggered by something, right, I'm having an emotional reaction just to Asher doing something that's really pushing my buttons. Mm -hmm. It's always about my own stuff. It's always about me either freaking out or worrying about what does this mean about his future? What, you know, or, or, you know, he shouldn't be doing this. Like this is making me look or feel a certain way. Like it's always my own stuff. And when our kids are having 
a big reaction to something, you know, whether we think it's inappropriate or not, it's because they don't have the skills to do anything differently. And they're telling us, they're telling us through their behavior, right? They're, they're communicating with us. So if we can take a breath and empathize and ask, you know, our kids like, you know, wow, you're really, you're really upset right now. What's going on? And then listen, just listening to what they have to say and empathizing with them. And that's really hard. And, you know, just kind of acknowledging it really is like flipping a switch. And sometimes, you know, I don't know, your listeners may relate to this. Sometimes I feel like I shouldn't have to do that, you know, you know, right. And so we have to do that work on ourselves to realize that the end goal here is to raise someone who has emotional intelligence and understands how they process the world and who feels respected by, you know, and, and valid that their emotions are valid. So that empathy piece has really been the game changer for us. And, and just keep coming back knowing there's always a reason. There's always a reason why, they're acting this way or they're doing this thing, even if it's so upsetting to us, what's going on for them that's that's causing that to happen. Right. And they may not even be able to identify what it is, but that's why we can work together with them. That's why we can probe a little deeper. That's why we can spend more of that one-on-one connecting time to really try and see why do you feel such resistance going to school in the morning? Why is it impossible for you to get dressed and find your shoes and it's simple. You should be able to get ready for school. But is there some other reason why there's so much resistance to getting dressed and going to school in the morning? Are you being bullied? Are you afraid of performing well on the math test? What is, what is it? Because it's usually something else. It is. And I'm just going to reiterate that quote that you just said, which was so powerful. When our kids are behaving inappropriately, it means they don't have the skills to do anything different. Yeah. And sometimes as adults, we behave just as poorly as they do. But we have the the like we have the ability to know better, right? Yeah. And so we can't <laughs> expect anything better from our kids than what we're doing or at least give them that space to also make mistakes and learn from their mistakes just as we would want that grace for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And and you said it. I mean, there is always a reason. Yeah. And that's a lesson we sometimes learn the hard way, right? You there know, is. we yeah. we punish our kids or we give them a consequence for something and then we discover later on like, oh my gosh, this is why this was happening, you know, and it could be something we never would have made the connection and then we feel so bad because yes. they were telling us in the only way they knew how. Well, and I think it's really important and I am guilty of this sometimes is invalidating their reason for behaving a certain way. Mm. So maybe they do say, well, I just don't want to go to school or I don't like school or it's boring or it's too long. Like, oh, it's fine. Deal with it. You know, like, oh, so-and-so is not being nice. Well, just play with somebody different. When we invalidate their the reason that they do come up with for behaving a certain way when it's against what we think they should or shouldn't be doing, that's not helpful either. And that's something that I really have to consistently, intentionally work on, especially for, for little kids that I feel have unreasonable responses to some things every response every emotion they have is legitimate we have to validate them first and then redirect and give them different tools if it's not appropriate behavior we have to teach them a different way but it has to be intentional 
Absolutely. And if I can just add to that, I totally relate to everything you just said. And for me personally, the one that's tough for me is anger because I personally Ah. am uncomfortable with anger, Mm. right? So when, when he's angry, I'm not okay with that. Like, that's not okay. Like I need, and so I've really been working hard on, you know, I don't want him to start bottling that up. Like if that you're feeling angry, that's a valid emotion. You're allowed to feel angry about this just because I have a problem with it. That's my issue, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, we don't want our kids to stuff their feelings away or to feel that they can't express themselves to us because we're going to shut them down. Sure, sure. And what better safe space than childhood to learn how to manage these emotions? Right? Because do you want him being a husband someday and not knowing the appropriate way to manage his behavior? You've only taught him to stuff it? No. You want him to be able to healthfully manifest that anger into something that's constructive and, and healthy, not stuffing it or unleashing in a rage. Either way. Exactly. So, so good. So, so good. Oh, man. And I think it's fine to recognize, too, that you can know all these things and not do it perfectly either, right? <laughs> like, I know, like, I agree with everything that you're saying. I know these things in practice. But Friday was a very difficult parenting day for me, and I know that I messed up a lot. But I'm really grateful for new parenting days. I'm grateful for forgiveness and asking for apologies for my kids. And it's all okay. It's all okay. We can always make things right. It's never too late. Yeah, I'm a fan of the virtual reset button, which I push mm. every single yeah. night because I usually need to, I need to, right. you know, something happened that day. And yeah, apologizing, all those things. Yeah. So super important. Yeah, and we're modeling for them. What happens when you do make a mistake? What happens when you do mess up? Even mom can apologize. Even mom can seek to make it right, just like they can as well. So yeah. you started a community called Tilt Parenting. Tell me about Tilt and what is your mission with that? Yeah, I launched Tilt just over two years ago, and I, you know, even when Asher was quite young, I knew I was going to create something because I felt very isolated and overwhelmed and just really, like, floundering and trying to get information or feel like, you know, I knew what any of this was going to look like as we were getting information about who Asher was as a learner and a kid and and recognizing that school was not going smashingly well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and I really didn't feel that there was anything out there for parents like me. It was all very, you know, uh, disorder focused content that I was finding online and stuff that didn't really feel optimistic. And it didn't speak to the whole range of experiences we were having. So when we moved here and, and, uh, I started thinking about what would this look like if I created it. And so I decided to start with a podcast. And uh, so I launched the Tilt Parenting podcast two years ago because I love the medium and I'm a big consumer of podcasts. And so I've used that to talk to parenting experts and coaches and authors and other parents to give parents like me access to you know, experts and, and have these conversations, things that people aren't talking about or that you'd have to get a referral or, you know, a friend mm-hmm. told another friend whose cousin's, you know, aunt is this therapist. You know, I, I wanted to just make it easy for people to access these experts and also more than that, recognize that they are not alone. Mm-hmm. There are parents like us in 
every community and our kids are everywhere. And I want parents to feel like they're part of a a, kind of the cool club, you know, Mm. there's nothing (laughs) to be ashamed of. And so I launched it uh, in 2016 and it's, it's also got a Facebook community. I have dreams and schemes for other things that I want to do and curriculum and community gathering. But, you know, my biggest goal for it is to, you know, for parents like me to help them feel like they're not alone and get them access and information and inspiration. But I, on a bigger level, I really want to be a part of shifting the conversation around neurodiversity so that, you know, the next generation of kids like our kids can feel accepted and they do have options in schools and Hmm. they're seen and embraced for who they are. Sure. And I feel like there's not that much conversation and support and compassion surrounding neurodiversity as much as, you know, classic special needs community and everything. There's a lot of compassion and um, awareness around that. But you're in a special niche where there's just as many families being affected, I'm sure. But there's not that same, um, and maybe you can speak to this, the same level of compassion at the park when your child looks completely typical but is not behaving in a way that maybe other mothers at the park would want them treating your child if they're more impulsive or whatever and, you know, not specifically to Asher. But can you kind of speak to that? Am I am I right in that? You are. And it's these invisible differences, right? Yeah. So as you said, on the outside, you know, our kids look typical. Yeah. And so there is a lack of awareness. And so they're often labeled, you know, by teachers or by other parents, you know, it, of other kids in the same classroom as the bad kid, you know, right. there's the the rowdy kid, the the slow kid, the weird kid, whatever it right, is. Right. And, um, and a lot of parents in my position are, they just want to get their kid through school and they, they don't want necessarily people to know what's going on. And so a lot of parents are really suffering in secrecy. They're afraid of, you know, labels that could follow their child around that they're going to be treated differently, that their child might feel, you know, excluded or uncomfortable with who they are. And so there's a, there's just this kind of like shame spiral almost that parents can fall into. And we find ourselves feeling really stuck when it comes to fitting in with other parents, especially in like a school or a neighborhood or something, because our kid is the one often who's doing something that is a little off or is not quite age appropriate. And so we got to make excuses or try to explain and it's just can be pretty uncomfortable. Sure. And I mean, even for, for my kids, you know, acting up in target and being stinkers, you know, like the looks that you get as a parent where it's like, you have no idea what's going on. Maybe there are underlying things of neurodiversity. Maybe it's just that they're exhausted. This is the fourth errand. Maybe their dad's, deployed you know that there's any number of factors that really can affect a child deeply and I think there is just so much growth that needs to happen in terms of compassion for all parents 
and all children for wherever they are at and never assume that they should be behaving better or they they could be doing it if they wanted to. If you hear a name, you know, of a child that's acting up a lot in your child's class, don't assume that they're just a bad kid. That is just heartbreaking to be the parent of that kid. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that it when these situations trigger our own insecurities, right? Ah. And I think that's one of the reasons why we do, you know, judge other parents and what they're doing or other choices or other kids because it it forces us to reflect on what might not be working in our own, you know, parenting relationship with our child. And so it's kind of this weird thing. It's really our own stuff coming up when Uh. we're (laughs) judging and, you know, making those looks or um, rolling eyes in a target. If another child's doing something, it's bringing, it's triggering our biggest insecurities, but yes, um, no one knows what's going on and compassion Compassion for other people goes a long way. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You are so right. You also have a new book coming out in June. Is that right? I do. Congratulations. Okay, what's that going to be called? Where can we get it? And who should read this book? So the book is called Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. And it comes out on June 12th. And I wrote it because... I wanted to, it's kind of a manifesto. So I really want to, as I said, shift this conversation. And so the first chunk of the book talks about, you know, what Differently Wired is, who these kids are, why, you know, we all need to um, change things, you know, what's at stake if these kids' needs aren't being met in terms of the future and also what's kind of keeping us stuck, you know, what, what's getting in the way of us kind of shifting this paradigm. Mm. And then the second chunk of the book, maybe the last two thirds is I've broken it down into 18 tilts. I call them tilts. Um, but they're really, um, a collection of these actionable shifts that parents can make in their lives to change their thinking or the way they're experiencing their journey as a parent that's going to really change the way it feels for everybody. It's going to help you feel more confident and peaceful and it's going to help your child thrive. And in terms of who it's for, I hope everyone reads it. You you know, obviously there's a lot in there for parents like me and I'm, I've have some people pre-reading the book right now and they've been emailing me and they, they all say it's making them cry. So I'm hoping that's a good mm. thing. I'm hoping there are tears of connection. <laughs> and, uh, but I also really want educators to read it. I want parents of neurotypical kids to read it because this is something we all have to be involved in. And it does involve all of us. This is the future of, this is the future of our world. These are the kids that, you know, are any child is going to be friends with partnering with working with as adults and so I'm hoping everyone reads it and it will be available in all the usual suspects, all the bookstores, um, online, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, anywhere you can buy books. Amazing. Congratulations. That will be so awesome. This episode is going to air at the end of June and so it'll already be available. And I hope you're right that it's not just parents of neurodiverse children that should read this. You're right. It's educators. It's me. It's, it's any number of people that need to expand their awareness of what parenting a child looks like 
and it's just awesome. I'm so proud of you. Good job. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Amazing. Amazing. So for people that want to either find you on the podcast or in your community online, where can people find you online? Well, the website is Till Parenting, so tillparenting.com, and that's where you can find all the podcast episodes, and I have a lot of resources on there broken down by different um, neural differences, so if you're looking for recommendations, that's there as well, and also information about the book, and then I'm, I have a pretty good Facebook group, so facebook.com slash tiltparenting, and I also love me some Twitter and some Instagram, mm-hmm. and it's tiltparenting for both of those as well. Amazing. Oh, so, so good. Well, I always ask my guests one final question, Debbie, and it is this. What would you tell your pre-motherhood self? <laughs> that is such a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I would tell her is to buckle up <laughs> and uh, not maybe be so cocky, Um but I think I would want me to know that Asher is going to be, you know, the most incredible teacher of my life and that I shouldn't fight that, that I shouldn't waste any time trying to fight it. And I should just lean in mm. and start the learning. Yeah. Beautiful. I really believe the children we are sent are meant for us. Not only are we equipped to parent them, but they can be our greatest teacher, like you just said. Yeah. So could not be more true. Debbie, thank you so much for sharing your motherhood journey, for all the work that you've put into Tilt Parenting and building that community for a certain niche that's not getting the awareness that, you know, it really deserves. I just hope it continues to gain more traction and grow and grow so people know that this is a thing, it is an option to get support in this area and that they can just find a lot of validation um, from you and from the community as well. You're doing great work. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed this conversation and I'm grateful to be a part of your podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great day, Debbie. You too. Wasn't that such an insightful conversation? I got so much out of that and I hope that you did too. You can check out Debbie and links to everywhere you can find her, her book, any of her resources that she's created through Tilt Parenting at our website, extraordinarymomspodcast.com. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at jessicadalquist3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. Coming up this Friday, Jessica Lamb is back. We recorded another Q&A episode with some of her most commonly asked behavioral questions. She is a special needs expert, but like I've said before, her parenting philosophy and her information has really transformed the way that I parent. She's a proponent of positive parenting, and I know you're going to get so much out of that. So I hope you'll tune in on Friday for those Q&A answers. I want to thank you again for showing up for our 250th episode of the Extraordinary Moms podcast. If you've left reviews already, thank you so, so much. And if you haven't, you can help out the show by doing a couple things. Leave a review. That helps so much have people find us on iTunes. Secondly, you can share the show with a friend. Screenshot an episode that has meant a lot to you. Take a picture of yourself while listening and say, hey, I'm listening to this show. It is inspiring me as a mom, and I know it could inspire you too. Share that on your social media. Be sure to tag me so that I can see it. That makes my day whenever I see you give the show a shout out. And if anybody's ever asking for podcast recommendations, I would love to have the Extraordinary Moms podcast included in that list because I know hearing from women that are doing their very best as moms and overcoming challenges in a very real way, we all need more of that in our life and it gives us a little bit more hope in our motherhood journey. So 
Thanks so much for tuning in today to the show, and we'll see you next week for another episode with another extraordinary mom. Bye.